Hello, good morning. How we doing? Man, where'd everybody go? They heard about the topic. They're like, nope, not showing up for that. Uh, good morning, why don't you come on in, find yourself a seat. Uh, as you can tell, we are talking about uh, the church in Nazi Germany. Uh, so this is gonna be a more sobering uh, teaching, a lot more sobering than jolly, all right? Even though I'm typically a jolly guy. Uh, it's just gonna be a, it's gonna be kind of heavy. So why are we spending a Sunday morning talking about Nazi Germany, about the church in Nazi Germany? Well, a few reasons. First, uh, there aren't really a lot of resources out there that focus on the church in Nazi Germany. Uh, you can find a ton of information about certain battles and Hitler's inner circle and German military strategy in World War II, all of these, all these things that give you a glimpse into what Germans were doing during World War II, but there are not a lot of resources out there that give you a glimpse into what German Christians, what the church was doing in World War II. And so we're going to be trying to fill in that gap. Second, we want to steer you away from what's, uh, what some people call the, par the Pharisee paradox. The Pharisee paradox. And this comes from, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells this parable um, in Luke 18, verse 10 through 14. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, what a jerk. He just kind of points this guy out. Even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this is Jesus speaking, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee paradox is that this Pharisee is thinking he's better than other men. And he points to a tax collector. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not evil like that guy. I fast, I tithe, I've not stolen any money from people like this guy have. Thank you, God, that I don't need your grace, essentially. And Jesus says that the guy who does this isn't justified like he thinks he is, but rather the one that sees that he is a sinner, that he sees that he, he is in need of God's mercy. And often, I think that everyone does this, by the way, when we approach the topic of the church in Nazi Germany, we begin to think like that Pharisee. We say, God, I thank you that I'm not like the Nazis. God, I thank you I'm not an extortioner, unjust, wicked, a murderer. God, I thank you that if I had been there, I would have been different. They're just dumb. They, I don't need your grace if I was in that situation because I, I would have done it well, unlike them. This kind of attitude, it only puffs you up rather than exposing in you the arrogance and pride that if left unchecked, can lead to such evil. And that's what Jesus is trying to keep you from doing, keep you from confessing other people's sin to God rather than dealing with your own. And so I don't want us to live in this paradox. So don't view the history of the church in Germany or history at all through that sort of lens. Instead, my hope this morning is that we will study this in order to take heed of the terrible example of Christianity in Germany, lest we fall like they did. And that's the final reason we're studying this, that we might take heed lest we fall. In 1 Corinthians, which uh, we've been preaching through for a while now, Paul reminded the church of this time where Israel rose up and they worshiped idols. And as a result, 3,000 uh, were killed among them. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul kind of points back to this. 
It says uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and 12. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we have much to learn from the terrible example given to us by the church in Nazi Germany, how they threw away their Christianity in pursuit of idolatry and a story of prosperity paved with blood, essentially. And we also, by God's grace, we'll talk about a few guys who gave us a better example, guys that we should pray that we might emulate, but it's important for us to take heed of these examples lest we fall. So that's what we're hopefully going to do today. We got a lot of ground to cover. You're like, wow, he's coming at this fast. Yeah, we got got a lot to do. Uh, and so that's what we'll be doing today. I will warn you that uh, throughout this, me practicing this teaching, I have like broke down and just cried and I couldn't get through it. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Otherwise, this whole teaching, you won't learn anything. You'll just learn that I'm a deep well of emotion. Uh, so hopefully that's not the prophet today. Uh, let's pray and let's get started. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace. I pray that we would indeed humbly come to you and confess that we are in need of your grace. Uh, we thank you for uh, the richness of your gospel, that it's not, not our work that saves us, but uh, the, your divine love and the work of Christ, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. I pray that we would live in that, we would rejoice in that, and that you would teach us this morning. And again, we would come to you uh, in humility, with contrite hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here's how I've organized this this morning. We're going to answer these questions what led to the Church of the Third Reich, the Reichskirche, that's the, the German state church controlled by the Nazis? What was the Deutsche Christian Faith Movement, and why did it matter? What was the Confessing Church Movement, and why did it matter? And how did the average Protestant respond to the Nazis? And then finally, what might we learn from these examples? What might we learn from these examples? Sound good? All right, it's okay, perfect. Let's kick it off with a quote from one of the Reichskirche's favorite pastors. It says, now what are we going to do with these rejected, condemned Jewish people? First, that we avoid their synagogues and schools and warn people against them. And such should be done to the glory of God and Christendom, that God may see that we are Christians insofar as we no longer tolerate such a building for the Jew in which they blaspheme, curse, spit upon, and disgrace Christ and us. Moses writes in Deuteronomy that where a city practiced idolatry, it should be entirely destroyed with fire and leave nothing. If he were living today, he would be the first to put fire to the Jew schools and houses. Secondly, that you also refuse to let them own houses among us, For they practice the same thing in their houses as they do in their schools. Instead, you might place them under a roof or a stable like the gypsies to let them know they are not lords in our country as they boast, but in exile as captives. I left that blank because it's a fun surprise. Who said that? The great reformer, Martin Luther. The great reformer, Martin Luther. That's fun. Surprises are fun, aren't they? So what led to the church of the Third Reich, the Reichskirche? One of those things certainly was the legacy of Martin Luther. You cannot talk about the church in Nazi Germany without starting with Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., that's a different guy, who was named after the little fat German monk that we're going to talk about. Uh, Martin Luther is this ultimate German hero uh, who freed Germany from the corruption and the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church. 
And so if you don't know the story, Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who grew increasingly frustrated by the fact that many of Germany's people, especially the, the poorest of them, were being coerced into giving what little money they had to the Catholic Church to buy indulgences. We've talked about this a lot. Basically, people were told if they gave the church money, their relative uh, who was in purgatory, they would have a quicker time in purgatory and kind of hasten the process, all the, you know, I guess, paperwork that angels had to do so that they could get to heaven, Okay. And so Luther hated this, as well as as a bunch of other things in the Catholic Church, 95 things to be exact. And so as legend legend has it, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses written against the Roman Catholic Church to the door of the Schlosskirche in Wittenberg, Germany in the year 1517, sparking the Protestant Reformation. Now we love that story because we love the doctrine of justification. We love a Bible written in our own language, all those things. But for Germans, this is remembered as the dawn of their kingdom. This is the origin, stu- origin story of God working powerfully through this German man to lift God's people out of oppression, where they went from being peasants under the thumb of the Roman Catholic Church's rule to defying their oppressors and fighting for their freedom from tyranny. Okay, it's actually very similar to our American origin story. You know, oppressed by Britain, we defied the power, you know, wrote this declaration, and God was on the side of freedom, and he blessed America. Fireworks, you know? And so this is the type of narrative that can really shape a nation and how they view God's relationship to their nation specifically because we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And the story Germans told themselves began with Martin Luther, Luther's writings and his Bible translation, his behavior, his legacy, all shaped the German understanding of what it looked like to be the ideal German citizen and what it looked like to be the ideal Christian. However, as great as Luther was, He also wrote several horrible and inflammatory sermons and pamphlets like the one uh, that we just read about his hatred of Jewish people. He was also instrumental in having individuals who adhered to Judaism kicked out of multiple towns, multiple cities uh, throughout Germany, including entire regions like Saxony and and Brandenburg. You can look up, those are still regions today. You can see how large those are. Uh, So listen to how one rabbi named Joseph of Rosheim described Luther after being kicked out of Saxony. It says, in 297, which is the year 1537, Duke Herzog, Hans von Saxon, so Saxon, Saxony right there, revoked his charter and resolved not to allow the Israelite nation to set foot in any of his lands because of the priest called Vile Martin. May his soul and body rot in hell, said Joseph Rosheim. So Luther, Jews, at least it was mutual, Right? The Germans, though they gained from Luther a more biblical view of justification and the Bible written in their own language and a greater emphasis on the scriptures, the list goes on, they also inherited a prescription for the treatment of anyone who called themselves Jewish that was terribly unbiblical. And so I'm not trying to blame all anti-Semitism in Germany on Luther, and I'm not trying to make you not like Luther, okay? All of, all of your Christian heroes are going to disappoint you. Europeans also seem to have a general disdain for Jews long before Luther, okay? So Luther's not the only one. But you have to recognize the significance of someone like the German equivalent of George Washington justifying the mistreatment of a particular population and how that can shape a nation for generations. Oh, wait, you should know what that feels like because when George Washington died, he had 317 slaves to his name. When you see your founders, when you see your heroes do something like that, it's not hard to, it's easier to justify it when you do it. 
So again, we are the stories we tell ourselves. And Germany's countrymen told themselves, as Luther said in one of his final sermons, the easiest way to deal with Jews is not to tolerate them, but to expel them. So, love Luther, and he's got a dark side. But something else that laid the foundation for the Reichskirche was the aftermath of World War I. And I have a picture of this coin in your notes that was minted in 1913, a year before Germany entered the First World War. And it was minted to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the victory over, of Germany over Napoleon Bonaparte, okay, in 1813. And so you see this man on a horse, that's the German king who defeated Napoleon and he established the German empire. And this new era of German prosperity sort of ensued as a result. And this little coin says, uh, der König rief und alle, alle kommen. The, the king called out and everyone came, all, all came. And then on the bottom it says, mit Gott für König und Vaterland. For, it's, this was done with God, achieved with God for king and country. Right? And many Germans and many German pastors, they saw their victory over Napoleon back in 1813 as a clear indicator that God was on their side, that God was on the side of the Germans, just like in the Reformation. He was using German people to stand up and defeat an evil oppressor. It's because whenever you win a war, you kind of conclude that you must have been right. Otherwise, you wouldn't have won, and God must have been on your side. And that was the conclusion the Germans came to. But even more so that God had this special relationship with the people of Germany, wherein God delighted to prosper the German people. And so after Germany's defeated Napoleon, Germany experienced this rapid industrialization, the significant economic growth. And the thought was, well, we're a Christian nation. We're not like the atheist French. That's why we're prospering so much. Therefore, God delights to bless us and prosper us. God obviously has a, a special place in his heart for the German people. And so with this coin in their pockets, just a year after it was minted in 1914, Germans entered the First World War, assuming it was yet another opportunity for God to prosper them, to expand their kingdom, to rid the world of evil, secular God-haters like the Serbians or the Russians. And this was something that German pastors explicitly propagated in sermons throughout the war. This one, this quote isn't on your notes, but there's a pastor, Paul Klein, uh, who preached in 1914 that, quote, God's help in the war effort is assured because the German people, in spite of any failings of their own, are still the most Christians, the most Christian in contrast to Russia's superstition, France's frivolity, and England's hypocritical Phariseeism. So, unfortunately for Germany, though, God did not give them the victory that they envisioned. Germany was absolutely devastated in World War I, and the defeat of Germany was not only a massive loss of life and property, but for the spirit of the German people, it was absolutely devastating. One German pastor summed up the feeling well in his sermon saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? World War I was seen as this crucifixion of the German people because it tanked their economy, it tanked their, their government, their values, all of their progress seemed to just go down the drain. One historian, Hartmut Lehmann, summed it up well. He said, German soldiers were praised as God soldiers. And Protestants believed that through their prayers, they could keep God on their side. Defeat came unexpectedly. In Protestant circles, this event could only be explained as the work of sinister forces, the liberals and the social democrats, and above all, many German Protestants believed the Jews. Their frustration found a fitting expression in the back 
stabbing legend. As they ask this question, why? Why has God forsaken us? How did this happen? Why did this happen? It was Hitler, actually, and his Nazi party that were the ones who provided the answer. Hitler provided an answer to this in his Mein Kampf, saying the German people had been stabbed in the back. We won the war on the battlefield, but liberals and social democrats, they were riding against us back home, kind of ruined our effort. And the Jews, they spied on us and stole from us while we were fighting to protect their livelihoods. Germany was stabbed in the back. In other words, had this been a country of only true Germans, dedicated to preserving Germany above all else, known as the Folk, that's a true German, ein Folk, had we only had a unified Folk united for Germany and none of these undesirables distracting us, well, then we would have truly succeeded. And so that went Hitler's campaign slogan, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer. Ein, one, one people, one empire, one leader. And this word folk is going to come up a lot today. There's no English equivalent. Folk is a very uh, difficult concept to explain. But in general, it refers to, first off, the Aryan race. Okay, no surprise there. Uh, those are the true Germans. But the folk are those Germans who were devoted to the prosperity of the Aryan race in the land of Germany. And so sort of as if the Aryans were like the true natives of Germany. That's how it's seen. And there's this almost spiritual relationship between the Germans and the fatherland. And so as some would say it, the folk is best defined as soil and blood. It's a particular land with a, a particular people, and those things go together. Therefore, in Hitler's mind, and many of the Nazis' mind, the key to German prosperity was a united folk. And so after Hitler's election, I use quotes there, election, uh, under the guise of his spirit, of the spirit of unity, Hitler did away with as much diversity as possible. He, political parties in Germany, all of his political rivals, elections in general. I mean, we know in this room how divisive elections can be. Well, Hitler's got a solution. No more elections, no more division. Now we're united once again. He did away with traditional institutions and organizations, anything that opposed his ideology and gathered anything he could under the umbrella and direct oversight of the Reich. All for the sake of preventing diversity. All for the sake of one folk, one Reich, one Fuhrer. And this is what gave birth to the Reichskirche, the official state church of the Third Reich. <clears throat> The Reichskirche was created to rid Christianity of divisions. Because Christianity in Germany before Hitler was divided into various denominations, similar to what we see today among American evangelicalism. And so Hitler did away with these various denominations and brought them under the leadership of the Reich, again, to unify them, per se. And the tool Hitler used to do this was this strange, extremely outspoken and political denomination of Christianity, if you can even call it Christianity, you can't really, called the Deutsche Christian Faith Movement. He attempted to unite the churches of Germany under the philosophy and theology of the Deutsche Christians, which would eventually define the philosophy and theology of the entire Reichskirche. So what was the Deutsche Christian Faith Movement and why did it matter? Why? Why did it matter? When I speak it, and I switch off between German and English, sometimes things get mixed. I just need to warn you that uh, that might happen today. Uh, if I start speaking in German and y'all don't understand me, just raise your hand. I won't know that something's happened, so let me know. Uh, Hitler lifted up the Deutsche Christians and their particular philosophy of Christianity as the ideal example 
of how churches should relate to the Reich. And so to understand the church in Germany, we have to talk about them. And so sort of a summary of this movement is that the Deutsche Christians, and that literally means German Christians, which you see how that could be confusing, because they, yes, sir, they're German, but they're not very Christian. So the, the Deutsche Christians were a small group of people who, like many, went into World War, World War I feeling like God was on their side and wanted to prosper the nation of Germany and the folk. But they Christianized, and I don't mean that in a good way, this idea of the German folk to an extreme degree. The Deutsche Christians saw Hitler as this Moses-like figure, even a Christ-like figure, that God had sent to lead the folk to their destiny, to the promised land. But that's about as Christian as they get. They, they did talk about Jesus sometimes, but they denied the divinity of Jesus. They denied the virginity of Mary. Many in the movement believed the Old Testament should be completely thrown out, too Jewish, obviously. Thought Paul's writing should be thrown out as well, because Paul's like really Jewish in their mind. He calls himself a Jew of Jews. And so they're like, oh, no more Paul, please. And they were very, they were anti-doctrine. They wanted a religion that anyone could easily understand. And all these intellectuals of their talk of the Trinity and all these doctrinal things, well, they're just dividing the folk. That's how denominations happen. We don't want to divide the folk. We want to unite them. So forget Christian doctrine. And so in every sense of the word, the Deutsche Christians were heretical. But you know who else it was called heretical? Jesus. And you know who called them heretical? The Jews. So you see how annoying these people would be to dialogue with, because that was always their defense. Well, we're just acting like Jesus. You call us heretical because you're friends of Jews, and that's what the Pharisees said of Jesus. So good luck. Very frustrating to read their writing. And the name that they gave for this dramatically revised Christianity was positive Christianity. Positive Christianity. Meaning Christianity was only positive insofar as it supported the folk. Negative Christianity, on the other hand, was anything that would divide the folk or hold the folk back from achieving prosperity. But positive Christianity was a religion for and by the folk. And so if you had super philosophical and intellectual doctrines, well, that might exclude some people that weren't as educated as you and they won't be able to understand it. We need to include them. Or if you had strong doctrinal positions, well, you need to give those up because we need to unite the folk. Or maybe if your Christianity made you criticize the Fuhrer, well, that's not positive at all. That'll hold the folk back from following their God-given leader. Remember Romans 13, God has put government leaders in their positions for your good to bear the sword against the wrongdoer. So don't hold the folk back from obedience to their God-given leader. These were their arguments. And so positive Christianity, the Christianity of the Deutsche Christians had no real doctrine other than support the Reich, be a good German. Support the Reich, be a good German. That's positive Christianity. And that's the type of Christianity Hitler could get behind. He was like, that sounds great. So let's talk about two key leaders in this movement, both uh, sickly looking fellas. First, Emanuel Hirsch. <clears throat> Emanuel Hirsch was a university professor who studied under Adolf von Harnack, if you recognize that name, we've talked about him. And he saw Hitler's rise to power as this amazing opportunity for the church to bring revival among all the German folk, rather than in previous generations where only some were serious about their Christian faith. And so he wrote, we all thought we must bear this reality that the taking seriously of simple faith in God and the keeping holy of moral values and discipline would restrict itself to the private sphere of small circles 
and that the large masses of our folk would fall into godlessness and indiscipline, separated from the Christian proclamation as by a wall. He says, back in the day, is what he's saying, back in the day, we used to think that Christianity could only be reserved to the small people who were really all about their faith. And we, we divided with this Christianity talk some of the folk. That was wrong. But now, as he says, now with the rise of the Nazi party, new hope has been given to us. And should our hearts not burn with enthusiasm that the Protestant church now say yes to this moment, that it sees the opportunity to cooperate with redeveloping the order and style of the German folk? So again, Hitler was reordering society to prioritize the folk, unlike previous generations who tolerated those who divided the folk. And in Hirsch's mind, the Nazi party gave the folk a chance to repent of their sin. He would say, God didn't forsake Germany in World War I. Germany forsook God by tolerating Jewish influence, he would say. Things like democracy, capitalism, or anything else that he didn't like or felt wasn't German, well, that's Jewish stuff, and we shouldn't have tolerated those things. And those things held the folk back from grasping God's blessings to the German people. And so Hirsch argued that the folk needed to be better stewards of, what, of the leadership that God had given them. The country was filled with all sorts of distractions from God's will for the folk and that they needed to clean it up a bit, not to tolerate what divided the folk any longer. And that God gave Hitler to lead the folk in the path of redemption. So that's Hirsch. <sighs> this is fun. <clears throat> the other guy you need to know is Ludwig Müller. Ludwig Müller. Müller was a former German naval chaplain who was made the Reichsbishop by Hitler and put in charge of the entire Reichskirche. He was essentially the Pope of Protestantism in Nazi Germany. Now, he was not known for being very smart. Uh, one historian described Mueller as a big, dumb idiot, uh, <laughs> which was great. But in spite of this, in spite of the many obstacles, he was able to tune the Reichskirche to his particular philosophy, which was, again, positive Christianity, this marriage of Christianity and Nazi ideology. But Hitler and most Nazis, they weren't really big fans of Christianity because Christianity was known as this religion of loving your enemies. But in Hitler's mind, that's what got them into this mess in the first place, tolerating and loving Jews rather than expelling them. And so Mueller emphasized that, oh, this Christianity of the Deutscher Christians, it's different. Hitler, you're going to love it. It's very different. It's a manly Christianity, is what he emphasized. A manly Christianity. One historian, Doris Bergen, says, Nazi critics accuse Christianity of preaching weakness, humility, and defeatism, feminine traits antithetical to national socialist values. In their efforts to defend against those charges, German Christians or the Deutscher Christians showed how they shared the principles of their attackers. They said, no, 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 we're like you, Nazis. Christianity, true Christianity, they argued, was not feminine and weak, but manly and hard. Again, Mueller was a veteran of the First World War. He was this, this very large, like big, imposing man who kind of put off this manly persona of brashness, just tell it like it is type of guy. And that's the type of guy that young German men wanted to be in Nazi Germany. And that's the type of German that Hitler wanted young men to be. And so if that was Christianity, then yes, Hitler was all for it. There's this little flyer from a Deutsche Christian uh, club that said, 
We want a kind of Christianity with which one can do something in life, a Christianity of which our youth will say, that is alive. There is heroism there that is not only for old women, but for the life-affirming men of the Third Reich. And so the Deutsche Christians offered a religion that was compatible with Nazi values for men. Leave the old praying grannies back behind us. As one Deutsche Christian pastor said in 1935 in a sermon, he said, we need a church of men, not of women of both sexes. Crazy. This Christianity was for the strong, not the weak. It was a religion that would make you stronger, not a weak little priest reading his books like a loser. That's sort of the, that's sort of the answer that Ludwig Müller came up with. It's interesting to note as well, uh, speaking of manliness, that Mueller died in Berlin on uh, July 31st, 1945, uh, which was a little over a month after the defeat of Germany. And it can't be confirmed, no one ever could confirm this, but it's most likely that he committed suicide in fear of what sort of retribution he might face. So why do the Deutsche Christians matter? Well, they authored the Aryan paragraph for the church In the fall of 1933, the Deutsche Christians introduced the Aryan paragraph, which required that all non-Aryan pastors or church officials be fired and replaced by those of the Aryan race immediately. And though the Aryan paragraph for churches was never officially endorsed by the Nazi party, it was adopted by many churches, and it marked this new era in many German churches where it prioritized race as as, as the means by which you entered the church over faith. Where, where membership in the church was no longer, no longer came through Christ's blood, but through Aryan blood. There's one uh, Joachim Hossenfelder, who's the leader in the Deutsche Christian movement, said, a godless fellow member of the folk, that's meaning an atheist, fellow member of the folk, who's German, is closer to us than a non-Aryan, than an alien, even if that alien sings the same song or prays the same prayer. His point is, you could be worshiping next to a non-Aryan in church, And you're closer to the atheist German who has no interest in the faith. Additionally, the Aryan paragraph was significant enough and accepted by enough churches to cause a few pastors to organize what they called the Pastors Emergency League to address this, what they saw as an emergency situation, this horrific defilement of the Christian faith. But before we move on to that, just to sum up the Deutsche Christians, without the Deutsche Christians, there would have been no Reichskirche. There would have been no way that people could understand what Hitler was doing to be godly or any way linked to Christianity. Maybe some would have, sure, but the Deutsche Christians made it official and they, made, they earned the support of many in the church for Hitler and far more than he would have had without their help. It's because they were able to move away from Christian doctrine while still calling it Christian and they essentially created a new religion wherein Hitler was the savior The folk were God's chosen people. Faith came by Aryan blood. And the promise was was prosperity for Germany. And people just ate that up. Most did, at least, with the exception of the members of the Confessing Church Movement. Now, what was the Confessing Church Movement and why did it matter? To give a summary of the movement, the Confessing Church Movement began as the Pastors' Emergency League. They're a collection of pastors and theologians from multiple denominations, Lutheranism, they were Reformed, and evangelical churches who opposed the Arian paragraph, which they argued was changing the very confession of the church. But they sought to hold to the true confession. That's why they're a confessing church, the true confession that Christ calls 
all men to himself. And these pastors also produced the Barman Declaration, which was almost like this declaration of religious independence, arguing that the Nazi party or the Reichskirche had no business interfering with or influencing the faith of churches or their governing structures. And this movement grew over time and essentially became a counter-denomination to the Reichskirche. But as the movement grew, the Nazis' frustration with their criticisms grew as well. And by the end of the war, the confessing church had been forced to operate completely in secret, holding secret gatherings, operating underground and secret seminaries, all for the sake of challenging the idea that Nazi ideology and Christianity were at all compatible. And so the guys you need to know from the confessing church are three of them, Martin Niemöller, Karl Barth, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So let's start with Martin Niemöller. He's kind of a controversial figure. Uh, he's a friendly guy. Look at him. Niemöller was a German Navy U-boat commander who was dismissed from duty in World War I after he was ordered uh, to give up and surrender his boat to England. It was, it was after the war was done. And he was driving this boat, and they said, hey, we've surrendered. Go park your boat in England. And he said, nope, I will never surrender. <laughs> he turned around and went the opposite direction. And so when he got back to Germany, he was uh, relieved of his duties. Um, but then he went to seminary, and he became a Lutheran pastor. But as with most World War I veterans in Germany, he was very supportive of Hitler and the Nazi party and this idea that Germany was going to usher in this new era of German prosperity. That was until he met Hitler personally. Niemöller had been very critical of the Deutsche Christians, and had publicly criticized their rejection of foundational Christian doctrines. He was like, hey, they're, they're not Christian. They're calling themselves German Christians. They're not Christian. This is weird. And he, was, uh, he had a meeting uh, in which Niemöller learned that his phone had been bugged and that the Nazis had been listening to every word he'd been saying. And he was threatened and chastised by Hitler himself for speaking against the Reichskirche. And so Niemöller walked away from that meeting convinced that Hitler was very dangerous to religious freedom and that he was not a, a true chancellor, but instead a dictator that could not be supported by Christians. As he saw the power of the Nazis continue to grow, especially in regard to their ability to silence their critics, Niemöller grew increasingly vocal in his criticisms. And so it was Niemöller who, in 1933, assembled the Pastors' Emergency League to combat the Aryan Paragraph. But his criticisms of the Nazis eventually caught up to him. He was arrested. And though he was only supposed to spend about seven months in prison, uh, he ended up spending eight years as a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps until he was freed by Allied troops from the Dachau concentration camp. And for Niemöller, that was the ultimate wake-up call, being in the concentration camp. Because before, he was mostly fighting for religious liberty. That was his fight. But after seeing the horrors of the Dachau concentration camp, he called for Germans, and especially Germans who called themselves Christians, to admit their participation and complicity in the murder of millions. And he wrote this poem, which he's most known for, these words, which sort of expressed his experience. I've included the German there, too. But I'll just read the English, because I don't think we have many German speakers. First, they came for the communists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So that's Martin Niemöller. <clears throat> Next up, 
is someone we've already talked about this semester, Carl Bart. I love that picture of him on the cover of Time Magazine. You know, Carl Bart, don't care who you are. That's what he looks like. He's just like, I don't care. Uh, Carl Bart was a distinguished professor and a very well-known Swiss Calvinist, and his theology continues to influence us today, which is why we spent an entire class talking about Karl Barth a couple weeks back. And because we've already had an entire class dedicated to him, I won't spend a lot of time on him, but his relationship with the Confessing Church was particularly valuable when he helped author the Barman Declaration. Barth was very critical of the Nazi party from the beginning, especially insofar as they set themselves up and Hitler as this messianic figure. This guy who was promising prosperity, he's going to rescue Germany. He, he called, uh, Bart called socialist or nationalist socialism idolatry. That's how he saw it. And the Barman Declaration was essentially the sixth thesis statement correcting and responding to the theology of the Deutsche Christians and denouncing the idea that Nazi ideology and Christianity could be compatible. It says no way. And I've left those points there. Y'all can read th through those yourself. Um, I think Zach mentioned this. Uh, Bart actually mailed this document uh, to Hitler personally, which takes a lot of guts. I mean, that's crazy. And so but with this document, in the same way the Declaration of Independence served to establish a new nation, the Barman Declaration established a new church, the Confessing Church. This was sort of their unifying doctrine uh, that they stood on and founded the church on. And it was Karl Barth who served as the primary theological mind when it came to leading the new church. But unfortunately, not long after writing this statement in 1934, Bart was fired from the University of Bonn. Why? For refusing to swear his allegiance to Hitler. He wouldn't take a Hitler oath or you swear your allegiance to Hitler. And so he just said, not gonna do that. Left Germany and moved back to der Schweiz and, or, okay, uh, Switzerland, Switzerland. It's called der Schweiz in German. Uh, where he uh, remained for the remainder of the war, helping the confessing church from afar, from Switzerland. And the man that in many ways stood in Bart's place after he left and went uh, away from Germany was, and was also his good friend was this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who, like Karl Bart, was critical of the Nazis from very early on, and he's really known for three things. He's known for his leadership in the confessing church, his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, and uh, his involvement in a plot to assassinate Hitler. That's what most people, I think, know Bonhoeffer for. But let's tackle that one first. Don't think of Dietrich as some sort of uh, secret assassin, some sort of secret agent assassin, because he didn't do anything like that. Instead, uh, he had some papers at his house that linked him to a plot to assassinate Hitler, what many refer to as Operation Valkyrie. Uh, that happened in July of 1944, an unsuccessful assassination attempt, obviously. But sort of put Dietrich Bonhoeffer's involvement, you're like, oh, he got arrested. He must have been pretty involved. 7,000 people were arrested in connection to Operation Valkyrie, 7,000. And uh, 4,980 of them were put to death because of it, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so if there's a book that's like Bonhoeffer, the pastor turned assassin, don't read it. It's a waste of time. That's, that's not Bonhoeffer. He did want Hitler to die, and he did wrestle with this question. He wanted somebody to kill Hitler. He felt like to not act was an act in and of itself. Um, but yeah, he wasn't a big major figure. He's mostly peripheral in the plot. Uh, second thing you need to know about Bonhoeffer is he was the leader 
Uh, he was a leader, if not the leader of the confessing church. Bonhoeffer was someone who very well could have risen in the ranks of the Reich Kirche, uh, except he didn't. Uh, there was, he felt like there was no way to reform something like the Reichskirche. And many asked him, why wouldn't you work your way up to sort of replace Ludwig Müller and, and kind of enact better Christian theology that would sort of flow through the kingdom, this trickle-down policy of theology? And, uh, you know, why'd you have to go start an illegal underground church? And Bonhoeffer famously replied, if you board the wrong train, it's no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. If you get on a train that's wicked and evil, you're on it. That's where you're going. You're just going to hit the back of the train. And so he, he believed the Reichskirche in and of itself was a wicked institution. And so he was actively involved in the creation of the Pastors Emergency League and, again, was essentially the leader of the Confessing Church. He poured his, his life into equipping Christians to navigate Nazi Germany without sacrificing their faith or their conscience and he also served as the director of an underground seminary that trained uh, confessing church pastors in the city of Finkenwald. He's got a bi biography about his life that I would, I would recommend. It's by a guy named Eric Metaxas, I think is how you pronounce that name. It's really thick. It's a big biography, but it's really, it was very interesting, very good. I'd recommend it. Last thing I want to mention about uh, Bonhoeffer, his most notable work was his book, The Cost of Discipleship where he never mentioned the Nazis explicitly, but instead pointed to the sort of problems that arise when a church is built on the preaching of what he called cheap grace. If you ever heard this term, cheap grace, that came from Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace, according to Bonhoeffer, is a gospel that says, of course you've sinned, but now everything's forgiven, so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. That's cheap grace. You're forgiven, so now don't change anything about your life. Costly grace, on the other hand, wasn't just a word of grace given, of forgiveness given, but an entire life of discipleship. And costly grace looked like this forgiveness which then compelled a person to submit to the yoke and the word of Christ in their living. And so this critique of cheap grace, Bonhoeffer wrote as he was seeing what happens when you build an entire church on the idea of you're forgiven, now go do whatever you want for years. Germany had done that for, for decades, and, and the prophet wasn't individuals submitted to Jesus or his word, but rather Nazis, this convictionless population easily manipulated by the Fuhrer. And so the problem with the church in Nazi Germany, in Bonhoeffer's eyes, did not begin when Hitler came to power, but rather over years of individuals, individuals forgiven but never discipled, baptized but never sanctified, given communion, but never had uh, any sort of church discipline. Shallow converts with shallow convictions. Like I mentioned, Dietrich was arrested for his involvement in a plot to kill Hitler, and for that he was hanged on April 9th, 1945, one month before Germany surrendered. So why does the confessing church matter? The confessing church, just to summarize, mattered because they rejected the idea that Christianity and Nazi the ideology could be joined together. And those in the confessing church led many away from placing their hope in Hitler and instead to Christ. Germany would have been worse, if you can even imagine, had it not been for the members of the confessing church. And especially they gave us an example that we should strive to follow. Now, how did the average Protestant respond to the Nazis. 
How did the average Protestant respond to the Nazis? Most Protestants were neither Deutsche Christian or members of the confessing church. Most were neither of those groups. They were just somewhere in between. Imagine a bell curve. That's where most Protestants landed. And so what did the average Protestant think of the Nazis and of Hitler? Well, we know that the vast majority of individuals who called themselves Christians in Germany fought for and supported the Nazis. But how could they do this? That's the big question. And I could spend an entire semester talking about this, and there's been a lot of research, psychological research, sociological research, how could people do this? And there's, there's lots of justifications that Protestants give if you read their journals and their interviews and their works for supporting the Nazis. Some would say it's just because they needed a job. When Hitler rose to power, he didn't, the economy wasn't great. And so there was just a, a, a meal ticket to provide for their family. And so they decided, oh, I'll just, I'll just join this movement. And then others, they said uh, they feared what happened to them if they had gone against the Nazis. Not just, you know, that they might get fired, but even socially. That something, you know, all of their friends would have deserted them. That's what many Protestants have said. Because uh, remember, Karl Barth, he was fired for not taking an oath, something that small. He refused to take an oath to Hitler, and so he was fired from his university job that he had had for a very long time. He was well-respected. But there were many that took the oath. Maybe they crossed their fingers. That was one thing that you hear a lot. They said, you know, they were able to rest, that they weren't doing anything evil. They were just wearing an evil uniform. You hear that sort of justification given? Uh, some people even said they weren't aware of all that was going on. They weren't aware of all the, all the death camps, all the injustices. They said that they didn't know. But I do want to talk about what it means to not know. I began our class reading a crazy quote from Martin Luther, like crazy. When you read that quote, it's shameful for Martin Luther to have said such things. And now, before reading that, how many of us knew that Luther had said some bad stuff about Jews? A lot of us, we knew that. But how many of us knew? How many of us investigated? Because I think for a lot of us, once we learned that, Hitler, or that Luther said some bad stuff, how many of us actually looked into it? How many of us knew the degree to which Luther wrote stuff against the Jews? So sure, we can say, yes, we didn't know before we read that quote. But at the same time, I think a better way to put it is we decided we'd rather not know. We decided we'd just rather not know. As long as we don't know, we don't have to feel any tension. We don't have to feel any discomfort. And likewise, sure, many Protestants in Germany can claim that they didn't know but they cannot claim that they tried very hard to know. There's all sorts of reasons, Protestants. I don't say that to shame you. I didn't know Luther was so, that he wrote stuff like that. So don't feel ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you with that. But there are many reasons that Protestants have given to justify their support of the Nazis. But in my research, I think the view of most in the Reichskirche can be summed up in an old German saying that I saw quoted throughout the Third Reich, which is, wo gehobelt wird, fallen spina, which means where wood is planed, shavings fall. Or like when a, uh, it's hard to translate, when a carpenter is at work, expect some wood chips to fall on the ground. So what they're saying is, sure, Hitler's not great, he's psychotic, but he's building something. He's building a better Germany, so it'll all be worth it. Sure, I hear about some some Jews and some others being killed, but I'm not sure to what degree that's actually true. I just try not to think about it. It's just where wood is plain, some shavings fall, which is 
horrific. Six million Jewish shavings fell. Seven million Soviet civilians. 1.8 million Polish civilians. 312,000 Serbian civilians. 250,000 individuals with disabilities who were living in German state mental institutions. 250,000 gypsies. And the list could go on for a long time. Ultimately, many Protestants just looked ahead to the prosperity being promised, but chose not to think about the brutal means by which it was being openly achieved. And as Bonhoeffer pointed out, no one had discipled them to think otherwise. So, we've read a lot of sad stuff. I want to close by offering us an opportunity to take heed uh, lest we fall. What might we learn from these examples. First, to call back to the Pharisee paradox. I would encourage us this morning to boast in our weakness, not in our strength. Approach this topic beating your chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't beat your chest, saying, God, good thing I'm not that bad. To be fair, you probably aren't interested in exterminating a, a race of people. Okay, so I'll give you that. Good for you. Pat yourself on the back for that. But... Believe it or not, Hitler at one time wasn't interested in exterminating an entire race of people either. But he was arrogant, and he was quick to blame others for his own failings, and he wasn't a good listener, and he did oversimplify problems, and he wasn't good at critiquing his own conclusions, and he was really good at quieting the voices of his critics and not listening to things that went against his conclusions, and he was really angry, and he did see himself as intellectually superior than the people around him and those who disagreed with, and he insisted on things going his own way, I could go on. Don't boast in the fact that you're not a Nazi this morning. Boast in the fact that you're in need of mercy, that you are a sinner, that you are arrogant, that you are quick to blame others for your mistakes, that you see yourself as superior to others sometimes. Boast in your need of grace so that you will boast in the mercy of God. Like Jeremiah says, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord, not in how they're not a Nazi. So approach this morning with enough humility to at least relate to the failings of the church in Nazi Germany. Try to see them in yourself. Second, don't sacrifice truth on the altar of your group identity. Don't sacrifice truth on the altar of your group identity. Truth is important. I think we can all agree with that. But the problem in Nazi Germany among Christians was this sort of curated truth. The only truth that mattered was the truth that supported the Nazi party. All other truth was just kind of tossed aside. There's this tendency, especially in our current age, to really value the truth that supports the conclusions of whatever group you identify with. But we're quick to dismiss the truth that runs contrary to our group identity. And so, for example, when it comes to your views on politics, on schooling, on vaccines, whatever, Do you share just any article you find that confirms your conclusions of whatever little group you belong to? When you hear truth that matters for your pushing your position forward, do you shout it from the rooftops? But what what happens when you come across something that kind of pokes a hole in your conclusion? Do you receive that readily? Oh, I want to get to the bottom of this. Or do you kind of dismiss it? From the moment you start reading it, you go, this can't be right. (laughs) This has probably been corrupted somehow. Don't do that. Do you have the humility, or can you have the humility to prioritize truth and submit your conclusions to truth? You're getting it backwards otherwise. 
Let truth stand as this arbiter and submit your conclusions to truth rather than curating a version of truth that will best serve your conclusions. That's what they were doing in the church in Nazi Germany, so don't make the same mistake. And finally, third, value discipleship. Value and treasure discipleship. That would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, call to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer concluded, after seeing the atrocities of Nazi Germany and the church complicity with them, that the church had not prioritized discipleship. The church had... Yes, they had services, and lots of people came to those, and the, the church had preached sermons, and lots of people listened to those, and the church even taught, some, some of them taught really sound doctrine and how to think rightly, and many, German, many Germans had adopted correct views. That's great, but the clearest sign of a discipleship deficit is right thinking that doesn't translate into action. Like Martin Niemöller, many in Germany thought what the Nazis are doing is seizing these people. That's not right. They thought rightly, but they did nothing about it. Niemöller says, when they came for the Jew, I said nothing because it didn't affect me. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a Jew. Discipleship is the process of submitting oneself to the commands of Jesus. As he says, you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And obeying him. Not just thinking rightly about what he says, but actually loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So if you like listening to our sermons and our theological equipping classes so you can learn how to think rightly, that's really great. We love that. We love and hope that you're served by these classes. However, that's only half of the Christian life. Because faith without works is what? It's dead. Worthless. It, ma- it means nothing if they don't pour out in in good works. You need this body. You need this community. You need friends who love you enough to say, hey, you're not being obedient to Jesus right here. Hey, you're not doing a good job loving your wife. You're not being really honest in this conversation. You're not being very charitable in your life. It doesn't seem like you're prioritizing prayer or reading your Bible. You need friends like that. You don't need polite friends. Nobody does. You need friends who will take the word of God seriously, hold it to your life, and encourage you to conform and submit to the word of God in your life. You can't live the Christian life alone. Prioritize right thinking, yes. Understand the faith, yes. But have a faith that flows out in obedience to Christ and a community to correct you when it's not. And I'll end this with this quote from Marga Moisel. Uh, who was a member of the Confessing Church, and during the war she gave the statement, sort of rebuking the churches in action in Germany. She asked, why does the church do nothing? Why does it allow unspeakable injustice to occur? What shall we one day answer to the question, where is thy brother Abel? The only answer that will be left to us is the answer of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? May we, Parkway, give a different answer. That we loved our neighbor as we love ourselves. There's so much more I could say. We're out of time. I want to take some questions. And so I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, answer some questions. God, I thank you that you're good. I thank you uh, for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would treasure your word, uh, and we would treasure your word insofar as we, as we obey it. Um, we cannot do this apart from you. Our righteous acts, apart from you, are like filthy rags. We confess we need you. I pray, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that we behave like Christ, 
by obeying what he's commanded. Again, we need you. Thank you for your mercy, your mercy on us sinners. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.